Well, this morning's scripture reading is from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The word of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. This is God's word. Please be seated. Welcome to church. I was having uh, lunch with a friend on Friday, and we, we try to have lunch. He's a fellow pastor in, in Orlando. We try to have lunch every Friday, and his name's Justin. And I just happened to tell him, hey, we're starting a sermon series on Ecclesiastes this weekend. And he said, well, you know, I wrote a, a Bible study for, for Crossway on Ecclesiastes. And I said, I did not know that. He's like, I got to tell you the story. And I asked permission. So this is, this is the story, and, and the reason I'll tell this story hopefully will become clear. Well, as he was thinking about writing a Bible study, he knew that it had to, been, had to be 12 weeks long. And he thought, Ecclesiastes in 12 weeks? So he realized he lived in Seattle at the time. He had a five-hour flight coming up. And he said, I knew I just needed to get in the zone. I needed to focus. I needed to immerse myself in Ecclesiastes to really feel it in order to write this Bible study that needed to be 12 weeks and no more. And so he took the advantage of this five-hour flight from Seattle somewhere on the East Coast. And he said, uh, because of a mistake, he ended up in the middle seat. So he sits in the middle seat. He orders two drinks, puts in his headphones, and turns on the song Hurt. It's a Nine Inch Nails song done by Johnny Cash. Three months before uh, Johnny Cash died, actually. You can hear it in his voice. And he just decides he's going to open his Bible, listen to this song on repeat, and just read Ecclesiastes over and over and over. Let me, let me give you some of the lyrics that were going on and repeat, okay? This is the pre-chorus and the chorus. What have I become, my sweetest friend? Everyone I know goes away in the end. And you could have it all. My empire of dirt. I will let you down. I will make you hurt. And he said, for me, it was, it was this, and you could have it all, my empire of dirt. That finally got him. He started crying. He said, so here I am, in the middle seat, flying from California to the East Coast. 
And I'm contained, but there are tears coming down my eyes. I'm just doing this sort of thing. And he gets up to go to the restroom about halfway through, and he comes back. And right as he's about to put his headphones back in, the guy on the window seat says, hey, hold on a second. Before you put your headphones back in, what are you doing? <laughs> and then the guy in the, in the aisle seat, he, he takes his headphones off. He says, oh, yeah, are you talking to him? He's like, what is going on, man? <laughs> he said, you know, the guy on the window seat said, I, I'm trying to figure out, you know, you're drinking beer. You're reading the Bible and you're crying. And he said, oh, I'm writing a Bible study on Ecclesiastes. (laughs) And the guy on the aisle said, oh, oh. So Justin engaged them. But but the reason I asked permission to tell that story is because the question that came out of his mouth, what is going on, is oftentimes what we feel when we come to Ecclesiastes. We don't have to see the stranger on the plane next to us weeping as he's reading the Bible, right? We don't have to see that to ask ourselves what's going on. We read Ecclesiastes, and we ask ourselves, what is going on? And so right at the beginning, in verse 1, we have a title. The words of the preacher. Now, right there, this should tell us this phrase, the words of. This is a collection of sayings that this preacher or teacher or sage, you could say, has put together. And so therefore, if he's put it together, he's done it for a purpose, But then in verse 2, we get the overall theme of the book. And this is maybe one of the most famous verses from Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Seven times he uses the word. In other translations, it might say meaningless. You may have heard that before. Meaningless. All things are, are meaningless. That's probably a more misleading translation than not. But yet it still gets at what he's saying. The theme of the book, which we'll have to discuss in a moment, is in verse 2. But then verse 3 for the rest of this nine-week series we'll be in, this is the question that informs the journey of the whole book. And that is this, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? That is what Ecclesiastes is about. And then for us, in this introduction, the introduction of the book is verses 1 through 11. Verses 4 through 11 we have a poem about the enigma of life. And the poem is meant to get under our senses, right? He shocks us with verse 2. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Seven times he uses the word. And then he tells us what the book is about, and then he launches straight into a poem to sort of get under our defenses, maybe. To tell us something poetically that we may not be ready to hear or able to hear if he were to just come out right away, as he will later. And be a little more direct. But of course, Ecclesiastes is a book because of its genre that is filled with a statement and then something way more elusive. And then another statement and then almost a contradiction. But it's an invitation which we'll see to deeper reflection. And this morning what I want to do is I want to introduce, I want to preach this passage which is the introduction. And I want to introduce the whole book. And I want to go about it like this. The first is verses 1 through 3. And what I want to to see is that it's a question. It's the question of toil and gain in verses 1 through 3. This famous opening statement in verse 2 leads to the question of verse 3, but before we can talk about it, we have to ask the question, what does he mean by vanity? Well, the Hebrew word is hevel, 
And it means, if you look, like I have an ESV Bible right here, and I look at my footnote, and it says breath or vapor. Hevel. So think of mist or a puff of smoke. Imagine if I had a, a candle. Imagine, kids, I had a birthday candle, and you see the flame, and I blow it out, and then the smoke, and the smoke is real. You can smell it. You can see it. But then it's gone almost as quickly as it began. It's a puff, and then smoke, and then gone. And so this word, hevel, is used 27 times in the book. It is the water that we will be swimming in. It is the context. It's shot through everything in the book. And it's used in other places in the Bible too, but in Ecclesiastes, we should take two things from this word throughout the book. The first thing is this, life is short. He wants us to see this. Life is short. All is like a breath. And this is familiar to us, Psalm 39, 11, man is like a mere breath. That's hevel, same word. Psalm 144.4, man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Breath, again, is hevel. So Ecclesiastes is a meditation calling us to grapple with the mere breath length of our days. So when we read hevel or vanity in the ESV translation, we should think that. We should also think life and all that is in it is elusive. Right? Many commentators will point out that this image of vapor or smoke is not simply about a short life, but it's about an elusive reality. It's about an elusive life. Think about the smoke again, the, if I were to blow out a candle. It's really there, but when you go to grab it, it just slips through your hands. Doesn't it? It just it goes through your hands. And in fact, if you try faster, if you try more fervently to gather up this hevel, this smoke, this vapor, it goes away faster. It dissipates even more quickly. So life is elusive. So Ecclesiastes is also then a meditation on how life seems to elude our grasp in terms of finding lasting significance. And see, that's what the question again is about. Lasting significance. Verse 3 is another way of saying, what is the meaning of life? Now, as we'll see in the weeks immediately to follow, he invites us on a journey, and the first three things he tries to, to combat this hevel. The first three places he invites us to try to find meaning under the sun is understanding, right? The more wisdom I have, the more I can control things, the more I understand. And he ends up saying, not to give it away, but that doesn't work. What about pleasure? He does the same thing with pleasure. That doesn't work. What about work and achievement? He does the same thing there. That doesn't work. And on and on, we'll see throughout the book. Life is hevel. All is hevel. Smoke, mist, vapor. We see it. We try to grasp it. It's through our hands. In a moment like this, if we do stop like we are now to consider this reality, the brevity, the uncertainty, the elusiveness of things, we kind of believe the teacher, right? We do. At least insofar as we understand, we believe him. But we live our lives like we don't. We live our lives like we'll live forever. We live our lives as though there's always plenty of time. 
As one person said, we live our lives as though they're made up of granite and not sand. And we live our lives like we're in control and we live our lives as though we can actually make a lasting significance in the world. But he'll destroy for us the idea of living for a legacy is, a, is even a, a worthy venture. I mean, think about it. All of us are closer to death than we ever have been. And one day we'll wake up, maybe it's already happened for you, and you'll reflect back on your life and you'll look back and you'll think about all the dreams that you had and you'll think about where you are and you'll say, I am not where I hope to be. All these great things that I wanted to do, I, I'm running out of time. What, what do you do then? See, the teacher is trying to invite us now so we don't find ourselves in that place. So that we reflect before it happens. And if it has happened, to reinterpret it through what he wants to teach us. The preacher in these first verses is shocking us from all pretense right out of the gate by confronting us with reality, this inconvenient thing called reality. And the narrative frame or the way the book is written is an invitation. It's an invitation to a shared intellectual and spiritual struggle, right? So our tendency is going to be to short-circuit the journey, to short-circuit the process. The tendency for me as a preacher is going to be what we call in hermeneutics, or not hermeneutics, uh, homiletics, this, the, what does it mean to preach and preach well, right? The temptation for me will be to leapfrog over everything to Jesus. Just get us to Jesus, get us to Jesus. And we will. We will get there every time. But if we get there too fast, if we leapfrog, I will short-circuit the, the point that the writer of Ecclesiastes is trying to take us in. We cannot short-circuit this journey. In fact, in this book, there are 32 questions. That's 12% of the content of the book. Over a tenth of the book is questions, and it's meant to invite us in. And if we don't slow down and realize that and reflect on that, we'll miss the point of the book. So verse 3, the point of the book, the question of the book, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils? Under the sun. Every, ver- every word in that verse matters because it's crucial in understanding the book. So let's just take them in sequence here. Uh, we'll start with toil. Okay, toil is anything you do in life. It, it, is, it is very hard to translate this word. Uh, work is, as we think about it, is too narrow, but the phrase under the sun helps us understand what he means by toil. Okay, so I'm going to do them together, take these words together. Under the sun is a way, a poetic way of saying our perspective, which is time bound. Okay, we can't get above the sun. All we can see is what we observe with our eyes, he'll say in verse 7 and 8, and what we can hear with our ears. Okay, so that, that's all that we can get at. He would call that under the sun. So that means we're finite. It means that uh, we, we're bound by time and observation, And so therefore, everything fits in that category. Everything that we do is under the sun. So that means toil is everything you do, including pleasure, including loving and serving and working and rejoicing and worshiping and walking and running and eating and cooking. 
and reading. Everything is toil. So you see, toil is a word that we often hear as negative, and oftentimes it does come across as negative. But think of it as, at least for now, in this moment, a little more neutral. Sometimes it's negative, sometimes it's not. But it is what we do day in and day out under the sun, which is our toil. And then this word gain. Gain is an accounting term for profit or advantage. And we love gain, don't we? So the question is this. What do we have to show in the end from all that we do under the sun? We strive and we work and we serve and we seek and we save and we buy. And when we come to the end, what will we have to show for it? You see, under the sun, there's a zero-sum game. You die, it's done. So, how do we view it then? Is it a waste? Is it not? We're going to keep coming back to this question, this, this, this reality that everything we clutch, everything we tarnish, everything we collect or strive for will soon enough fade from memory. And then we have to say, what's the gain in that? What's the gain in doing what's right? If in the end, everybody ends up in the same place, the wise and the foolish, they both die. The righteous and, and the unrighteous, they both die. What gain is there in that? So it's important to point out at this stage, the teacher has restricted himself to thinking at the point of only life under the sun. Okay, so it's important to keep that in mind. He, 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 he already signaled this to us. He's thinking about life under the sun. That is to say, life that we can think about, that we can observe from our own seeking. One commentator put it this way. Looking under the sun for gain by our toil is like trying to buy medicine in a shoe store. The shoe store matters. It has a point. It has a place. But there's no medicine there. You don't get your prescriptions filled in a shoe store. So whatever we, whether we move or we stay, whether we spend or we save, nothing and no one can make our lives pay off or yield the return for which we hope. For all of its beauty and dignity, nothing on earth possesses this ability, but we refuse to believe this. So the preacher uses the rest of the chapter to prove his point. And that takes us then to the second and last thing I want to look at today, and that's the rest of the chapter, verses 4 through 11, and that is the poem of death and same. So we have the question of toil and gain, and now the poem of death and same. In verse 4, the teacher begins, as one person put it, the deconstruction of profit motives. Remember, he's saying all that striving is you trying to store something up so you have something to show for your life at the end. And guess what? You're going to die. Everyone's going to forget you. So what's the point of life? That's what he's been saying so far. And then he's going to tell us a poem. And what he's going to show us is the stability of earth compared to human life should teach us something. So in verses 4 through 7, you have things coming and going, going round and round, and then returning. There's great repetition. And he's saying, despite you and me, we die tomorrow, the sun rises and the sun sets, and it, it goes on and it's indifferent to you. 
The fact that you existed, who cares? But the point is not only to draw out the obviousness of repetition and that you die and are forgotten, but to ultimately point that we fit in the cosmos, we don't control it. And that's going to be something that the writer, the teacher, the sage in Ecclesiastes is going to point out to us over and over, is that in our gaining, what it really is, is a seeking to control our life, both the direction of our life, as well as authority in our life. We want to control things. And there are different ways he's going to show us that we try to do this. But the word gain is crucial in understanding that relationship of our control and our seeking and having something to show in the end. So when you look at verse 9 and 10, we're going to come back to 7 and 8. He, he says this, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. This is a refrigerator verse, right? And uh, I need to point this out because as I was preparing for this, people would ask me, what about the iPhone? Right? That's new? Of course it is. Of course it is. And of course, he's not saying that nothing new will ever be invented. In fact, he goes on the rest of the book and tells us about the fact that he did stuff that no one else did, which is why he can tell us there's no life there. Right? So he did some new things. So he's not talking about or questioning human inventiveness or the evolution of technology. What he's talking about is newness from the perspective of gain. You see, there's nothing new in that humans have always been, will always be striving for something to show for themselves in the end. Even going to the moon, that's pretty incredible, but the moon won't satisfy. Next is Mars, and the Mars won't satisfy and going on. So what is that? That's just our desire, both good and bad, to continue for adventure, to continue to see. And he would say, yes, see, there's nothing new. The details are different, but the lust, the desire is the same. And guess what? There is no gain in that. So from a temporal perspective, no one ends life in the black. No one. So why are you saving? He's asking. And in verse 11, he ends this way. The obvious truth. All of us are bound to live in relative obscurity during our lives, and then we die, and then we're forgotten. Obvious truth. It makes me feel better. I mean, sometimes I think I'm not important enough. Maybe I should start a blog. And then I'm like, that would make it worse. (laughs) That would absolutely make it worse. Maybe I wouldn't be as obscure, but I would be seen to be uh, as foolish as I actually am. More words. He'll have something to say about that later. Keeping up words has its own risk. And so in verse 11, he basically is saying, if we read it, there's no remembrance of former things. If you look in your footnote, you could translate that people. There's no remembrance of former people or things there, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things or people yet to be among those who come after. So you see, this poem is setting the stage for the rest of the book. It's preparing us. It's priming the pump. But he's doing it in such a way to invite us in, confuse us a little bit, so we can't disagree with him as quickly as we might if he just launched into a lecture. He's trying to combat our defenses, to bring them down. So we see right out of the gate, the teacher is attacking the most basic commitments and idols that you have and that I have. And one author called it the trinity of modernism. You and I long for this. And and this is the trinity of modernism, control, freedom, and progress. 
Everything in our life promises us control. We want control. We think we can get it, and we spend our life going after it. In fact, the whole project of modernism was certainty so that we can control things. And the way to certainty and control was specialization. And there's been this, you see it in fields like medicine and, and, and even in theology and biblical studies, specialization, specialization, specialization. Why? For certainty. Why? For understanding. Why? So that we can control things. And he won't let us go there. He'll show us over and over. Remember, things are elusive. As soon as you think you can grasp an understanding of anything, it just slips right through your hands. In fact, I feel that, I feel that way studying this book. I'll get to a place and I'll think, oh, I, I, wait, oh, it's gone, it's gone, it's gone. I had it. Why didn't I write it down right away? And then I write it down and I come back the next day and I think, this makes no sense to me anymore. Yesterday it made sense. Now it doesn't. And commentators, thankfully, point out they feel the same way. Spend years on this book writing hundreds of pages. And they say, you know, the form and the content go together. He's telling us everything is elusive. And even trying to grasp what he's saying is also elusive. And that actually gives me comfort the more I study it. So control is an illusion, he says. You think you have control, then it slips through your hands. What cannot be fully grasped cannot be controlled. If you can't grasp smoke, how can you control it? Later on, he'll say, you trying to control things is like trying to shepherd the wind. Think about that image. Let me gather it, let me gather it in, and it just blows you over. The other thing is freedom. But he attacks freedom throughout, but maybe you, you missed it. Verse 8, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear with filled with hearing. You see what he's saying? He's saying is, no matter what you see, you need more and more and more to satisfy you. There's nothing you can hear to satisfy you. It just keeps coming in and in and in. And the connection is with verse 7. If you see verse 7 says all streams, verse 8 says all things. What he says is, all streams run to the sea. They keep pouring in, pouring in, pouring in. When is it, when is it going to overflow? It doesn't because it can't be filled up. Same thing with your desires. You can go see all you want. You can hear all you hear and you will not be filled up. So where are you going to find freedom then? Freedom to what? On your own. In verses 7 and 8, another thing he's also saying is that under the sun, the project of finding meaning under the sun automatically puts you as God. Okay? And he's saying, that's not going to work either. You think it's freedom, but it's not freedom. Because you'll never be able to see enough or hear enough to help you understand the elusiveness of life. It'll still be there when you get back. You'll think you have it, and then it's gone. And so the last thing is progress, right? Any progress that leads to ultimate gain is not possible. Why? Because everyone dies. So the trinity of modernism, control, freedom, progress. He's going to show us it's a foolish endeavor to find gain in those things. Now, of course we experience more certainty. Of course we have more control in some ways. Of course we have more freedom. Of course there's been progress. These are good gifts, but this brings us to a crucial point in the message of Ecclesiastes, and that's this. To understand Ecclesiastes, we have to understand the writer is telling us life is gift, not gain. And if you live life to gain, to store up for yourself, to make yourself feel meaningful, to satisfy yourself, you'll lose it. But if you receive life as a gift, then you can enjoy it. That's what he's going to tell us. You see, when pursued for gain and control, 
you lose it. So even if you pursue wisdom and pleasure and work, if you do it for gain, you'll lose it. So think about this. Think about life in a bubble, right? Imagine yourself in a bubble. You could call a bubble, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live in the bubble of wisdom. And if I'm smart enough, I'll protect myself from all danger. This is where I live, just so you know. This is where I live. I think if I just know enough, if I can just be smart enough, then I can walk into a room and not be vulnerable. If I know everyone's position, if I walk in, I can protect myself. I can put myself in a bubble. Do you do that? Do you use pleasure that way? Right? You, you, you want to skirt the responsibility of life by saying, we're going to die tomorrow anyway. And you push away all pain by just having more fun. You won't deal with pain. You just put yourself in a bubble called pleasure. You say, I'll just get more. I'll get more. I'll get more pleasure. I'll get more pleasure tomorrow than the next day. There's always new experiences. There's always something new to see. There's always a new place to travel. I'll just leave my pain behind. I just won't deal with it. I just won't wrestle with it. There's always the next relationship. There's always the next comma in the paycheck. More pleasure, more pleasure, more pleasure. Leave it behind, leave it behind. Leave the pain behind. It's a bubble. And what about work? Achievement. If I just make a name for myself, one more degree, one more publication, one more conference, one more line of business. More, 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 more. It's a bubble to protect you from this inconvenient thing called reality. And let me tell you, there is a needle that's coming. There's a needle that's going to pop every single one of those bubbles. And it's called death. You will die. And I will die. We don't think about it as we ought. We don't think about the certainty of death. It is the only thing right out of the gate that he is most certain of. And that is death right there. I mean, he says it's, he's alluding to it all over the place. A generation goes and a generation comes. And nobody cares and nobody remembers. Verse 11, there's no remembrance of former things or people, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be. That is the, the, the needle that's going to pop my bubble of wisdom and your bubble of pleasure and your bubble of work and achievement and on and on and on. You see, what we will see in the book, or at least what we should see, is that life lived for gain under the sun will increasingly be filled with the disappointment of diminishing returns. It'll promise more and give less. So what bubble are you in? What bubble are you living in? He's going to pop it. So get ready. And don't short-circuit it. Please don't. It's painful. And he feels it. We feel it. But it's necessary. So where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? If, that, if that's the overview of the book that he gives us in verses 1 through 11, I've, I've signaled some things that are upcoming. Where do we go? After we're so disoriented, I think it's good to anchor ourselves in the conclusion of the book. Okay, that is a benefit that we have. So you don't have it. I'm just going to read it to you. It's 12 chapters long. Flip to 12 chapters. Chapter 12, verse 13 and 14. The end of the matter... All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty 
of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Fear God. You see, there's nothing wrong with the Sunday school answer. As long as you're willing to go through the journey of pain and struggle. Otherwise, the Sunday school answer won't be satisfying. It'll seem flippant. It'll seem trite. It'll seem shallow. But if we follow him through this journey, all of a sudden, you guys, the fact that Jesus is the answer, the fact that Jesus has raised from the dead, the fact that our faith is not, remember this from last week, in vain. Interesting word, right? Connection, you see that? That our faith is not in vain. It's not elusive because, in fact, it's getting increasingly more solid. It's not enigmatic. It's not elusive. It's not ethereal, right? It is getting increasingly more solid because our faith is based on an incorruptible, raised from the dead, Jesus of Nazareth. And that's why our faith isn't in vain. But to really receive that and to take the risk that that allows us to take in our life day in and day out. That, and here's a risk, don't live for gain, but live for gift. Don't store it up, but enjoy it. Keep your hands open to it. As soon as it comes, it may go that quickly as well. And are you okay with that? See, the Sunday school answer is still the right answer. So come on this journey with him as he takes us to his conclusion that must anchor us. We must remember that he's going to guide us on this reflection from the perspective of things being under the sun. The preacher is describing to us what is vapor, what is vain, what is elusive, in order for us to discover what isn't vain, what isn't vapor, and what isn't elusive. He's got to show us what it is before he can take us to something more solid. And so by leading us through an honest reflection on this frequently confusing and frustrating and fallen world, he reveals the necessity of fearing God of no no longer being autonomous, but submitting ourselves to his perspective and his goodness. Living life under the sun. I'm from Indiana. If If you only stay under the sun and you won't receive God's good gifts of revelation, God's good gifts of of his of his word to us, right? It's like this. In Indiana, in the Midwest, there's a lot of corn. And there are these things that aliens do. Right? And they're crop signs or signals, right? And really what happens is these intricate plans of people, they go out and they have these contraptions, and overnight they make these designs in a cornfield. You can just Google it, right? Now, when you're walking in one of those, it it looks like nothing. You're so confused. You you, you get lost. It's like a maze. But But when you can get above it, you see there's actually a purpose to it. There's actually a point. There's something intelligible about it. And you see, life under the sun is like me and you trying to walk through that maze from ground level and seeing the big picture. It's impossible. That's why everything seems meaningless. It seems insane. It seems utterly random. But he's going to invite us and take us beyond the sun. He's going to get us in the helicopter and take us up 
And he's going to help us see more of what God has given us. But what you need to know, and Mike's going to talk about this more next week, is that there is a, there's a movement, there's a, there's a purpose in this wisdom literature. And Ecclesiastes has an important place to play in the Bible. And what it's trying to tell us is the kind of wisdom worth having comes by faith, not by sight. Okay, you can't get above the sun by sight. It has to be given by a gift and received by faith. And so as we leave this place today, um, let me tell you what I want you to feel. And, uh, and hopefully I've already, you're already feeling this way. Otherwise, maybe it's too late. But what I want you to feel is I do want you to feel to the end of your tether a little bit. I do want you to be disequilibrated, right? I want you to be kind of like, what, what just happened? And then I want you, every time you feel that, and it doesn't feel good, I want you to go to chapter 12, and I want you to read it. And I want you to remember that all of this is for your good, to tear away those bubbles, to pop them. All of this is to take your hands that are like this and just pry them open and point you to fear of your Creator. And of course, that's a good thing. Some of us, we need to be reminded that, in fact, the reason that our striving isn't satisfying us is because it's not supposed to. And that's a hard truth to hear. But what if it's supposed to point us beyond the sun? Just think about that. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now. We ask you to uh, be with us as you have promised you would be as we make this journey together. This is, we all need to be disequilibrated. We all need to have you come in and get under the our skin, to get under our common reflection and to disrupt our lives, to decenter us from the illusion of control. And I pray that it would lead us to increased dependency upon you. It would lead us to complete trust in you, that we would venture wholly on you, that we would trust in you, that we would realize our soul finds rest and hope only in you. And this week, as we go out and we find ourselves striving to find rest and meaning and purpose in other things, that you would remind us to live for this gain is a bubble that will be popped. But there is gain beyond the sun that's a gift, and that's you, Jesus. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.